Well, I am an active member, you may know, in Slovenia Rotary, and Rotary is an international service organization. It's been a great place to connect locally, to build some friendships, and, and to make a difference here in the community. And, uh, our typical Rotary meetings have a time for lunch, and then a time where we will connect and, uh, and have a presentation of some sort. Uh, these are pre-COVID days before we were online entirely. But one day uh, this past year, I was actually giving a presentation at the meeting on leadership development. Uh, talking about some things that have been central to making, I think, us effective and strong as a leadership culture in our church uh, that are transferable into, into the world. And so I was getting ready to give this talk, and one of the more, shall we say, seasoned, experienced Rotarians uh, in life came up to me prior to the, the talk, and she goes, now, are you going to be addressing uh, this cancel culture going on around us? And I looked at her, I just blank face. I had never heard of cancel culture. And I think I'm usually fairly tuned in, so it caught me by surprise when I hadn't heard of it. As she talked about it, I thought, this is something I need to pay a little more attention to. And so I'm grateful that this last month, we've taken this, this month of November and, and addressed cancel culture. And how do we look at it through biblical lenses? Now, if you're like me in that moment when you just heard cancel culture and you glazed over and went, huh? Here's what cancel culture is. It's the practice of withdrawing support for or canceling, then attacking public figures, companies, or other relationships, even the people closest to you, after they've done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. So cancel culture is triggered by actions or words, uh, even ideas that create an offense. You know, maybe, maybe it's that someone is, is unfamiliar with grace, and doesn't want to show grace, or maybe it's that someone just doesn't know how to agree dis or to disagree agreeably with someone else, or maybe someone's unwilling to see something from another perspective. We create an, an environment where where I am righteous and right, and no one else therefore can be righteous and right. So everyone else is unrighteous and wrong, and I'm going to cancel them. It's amazing how many how often people will will encounter thoughts or ideas or things and then turn and cancel a person. Now, God's call is to something different. It's to a higher, to a better way. And in week one of this series, we said our big idea was that God desires redemption, not cancellation. God re desires redemption and not cancellation. God's always working in the midst of the brokenness of the world to bring wholeness and to bring healing. And we've unpacked that over the course of the last several weeks. We talk about the idea of, of being angry but not sinning and how that looks. Pastor Mike and I had a dialogue on stage one week. Then the last couple of weeks we've looked at the prodigal son story from a couple different angles. And this whole time unpacking about how God desires redemption, not cancellation. This week we're wrapping up our series. We're going to be coming out of Acts 9. I invite you, if you're a note taker, to take some notes. In your service guide there's some blank sheets of paper. If you're online with us, you're welcome to just grab a piece of paper and take some notes along with and if you have your Bible, either a Bible app, or if you're still using a paper Bible, either way, I invite you to join me in Acts 9. We'll be going through Acts 9 in the New Living Translation today, just drawing some conclusions from there. But here's our big idea for today, is that your cancel culture moments can lead to God's redemption stories. Your cancel culture moments can lead to God's redemption stories. And the greater the cancellation is, the more powerful God's redemption can be. The more public the cancellation, the more praise God can get when it's redeemed. To use another biblical phrase, you might say, what the enemy intends for evil, God can still use for good. 
Now, I have three thoughts for you today. The first is this, that pride comes naturally and leads to cancellation. But humility is a choice that sets up redemption. Humility is a choice. I'm going to come back to that. If there's ever someone who excelled in canceling others, who excelled in pride, it was Saul. And when we get into Acts 9 here, we've got Saul, a leader among the Jews. And here's what, where Acts 9 begins. It says, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. By followers of the way, this simply means people who had chosen to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now last week we said that pride hypes how we see ourselves and it drives cancellation. Now Paul, Saul here had plenty of cause for pride. This is a person who had intellectual training. He was smart, well-reasoned. And he could cancel others through his intellectual powers and abilities. This is someone who had physical powers and capabilities around him. Right? His desire is to bring the men and women back from Damascus to Jerusalem in chains. Now this is not something he's going to do single-handedly. But he's got the power around him to, to cancel others by force. And he's someone who had positional influence. Right? The decisions that he make made could cancel others, and he would be praised for his cancellations. He had influence among the Jews and amongst the culture there. He had a firm belief that he was right and they were wrong, and he was going to make sure that that was known. Now, those same facets of pride exist around you and me today. There are three whispers I want to mention here, whispers of pride that come out to you and me that, that entice us or tempt us toward pride. And here's the first whisper. That you're smarter than they are. You're smarter than... If they knew what you knew, then you wouldn't have to cancel them. If they had street smarts like you, then maybe they would get it and understand. If they had academic book smarts like you, well, maybe they would come around and understand this and, and you wouldn't have to part ways. And the more educated we become, the louder that whisper gets to think you're smarter than they are. There's a second whisper. You're stronger than they are. You're stronger than they are. You're more capable. You're more wealthy. You're more powerful. You know, if, if they were in your position of power and wealth, they would see things a little differently. And you might not have to cancel them. Or this works the other way around, too. If they were in your position of poverty or need, and not so high and mighty, then you wouldn't have to cancel them, write them off. You can bully up or you can bully down. It works both ways. But the stronger you get, the louder that whisper, you're stronger than they are. Here's a third whisper. You're better than they are. You're better than they are. If they, if they had to make the decisions that you had to make, or if they had to live out the circumstances that you have to live out, well, they would see things differently. They would make different decisions if they had things through your eyes, if they had your influence, if they had your position, you're really better than they are. And the more influence you gain, the louder that whisper becomes. Now here's the thing. None of these whispers, I think, are inherently right or wrong. They're not inherently good or bad. 
Because who doesn't want to get smarter? Who doesn't want to get stronger? Who doesn't want to get better? I hope that I'm getting smarter and stronger and better as I go throughout time. See, the, the thing is, we, that can, those whispers can either lead us towards something better or something worse. The difference maker of whether they lead toward cancellation or whether they lead toward redemption is the difference between pride and humility. Self-revelation launches the journey from pride to humility. And we just said before, if there was ever anyone who excelled in canceling others, it was Saul. Well, if there's ever anyone who had, ever, anyone who had a come-to-Jesus moment, it was also Saul. Here's, let's go back to Acts 9, verse 3. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, again, to kill the Christians and chain them and bring them back to Jerusalem, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. And Saul picked himself up off the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days, did not eat or drink. Now let me unpack what's happening here. Saul is uttering threats. He's canceling others. And in a moment of clarity, he, re- he hears from Jesus. And I got to think, this has to be one of the most horrifying revelations he could possibly receive. Because in a moment here, his whole world unravels. The thing that he thought was true all of a sudden was false. He's thinking Jesus is just a criminal that we nailed to the cross. And suddenly he's realizing that, that he's the Messiah. And these people that he's persecuting, thinking that they are his enemies, are actually the very people of God. And he's having to reconcile this new revelation with what he is thought to be true to that point. And the thought's hitting him, oh no, I might actually be... There's a chance I'm... I'm wrong. And God allowed the fall, and God pointed toward next steps. Now, to Saul's credit, he got up and took them. Right? It's one thing to be knocked down. It's another thing to choose to get up and take those next steps. Now, it says that his friends and his companions led him to Damascus. But given Saul's stature, given his influence, given his power, given his reasoning, I don't think he's going if he doesn't choose to go. So his friends lead him into Damascus. Here's a thought for you. You can be humbled, but you have to choose humility. You can be humble, but you have to choose humility. Let me bring this to life for you. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, and I have been in the market for a while for some dumbbells uh, to lift, which, by the way, are, are insanely expensive. Why, why are pieces of metal so expensive? I, I just don't understand it. Anyway, we, we've searched and searched. Finally, we found these, settled on these dumbbells that will adjust from 5 pounds to 52 and a half pounds. They're awesome. Uh, we searched and we searched. Eventually, we got them from a sporting goods store. So I went to pick them up uh, last week, a couple weeks ago. And so I get to the store, and the guy at the work in the store brings out a hand truck, and he's hand trucking this uh, this big package out. And uh, and I looked at him. I said, oh, he goes, he goes, hey, is your car right here? I can bring it out to your car for you. I said, oh no, I got it. <laughs> and that was his response. <laughs> 
this would have been an excellent time to choose humility. But I didn't. I got it. 52 pounds, two dumbbells, I can lift that. Well, package them in an awkward-shaped box together, and it becomes 105 pounds of awkward box. He had to help me and the dumbbells out of the store. (laughs) I was humbled. I should have chosen humility. Your simple circumstances will never lead to true humility. Because the reality is that your highest and your lowest moments can both be sources of pride. Pride at its roots is trying to mask feelings of inferiority with displays of superiority. In that moment when, he, when that guy said, hey, uh, can I bring this out to your car? I'm going, I got this. Uh, you know, and, and when he laughed, I'm, th- I'm thinking, okay, he thinks he's superior to me. I'm just going to show him how superior I am and try to lift this box. It was just pride. It was pure pride. And pride feeds on a comparison to the people around me. It, it may lead to some self-loathing, loathing my place and position in life or who I am. It may lead to some self-love and loving my, myself for the position I am. But humility will never be found in the recognition of others or in the rejection of others. Humility is discovered when you see yourself rightly before God. Let me unpack that for just a moment here. When you see that you are created in the very image of God, so you're kind of awesome. Right? You think about that for a minute. If you are created in the very image of God, bearing his image and his character and his attributes, you are kind of awesome. That's incredible. You're also born into a fallen world with an appetite for sin. And so you're kind of messed up. And we start to live with that. We're, we're kind of awesome, but we're also kind of messed up. Now, you're given a Savior to take care of what's messed up. So you're loved. You're offered salvation and a gift of eternal life so you can be saved. You're called to live out in a new creation. And not just called to live at that, but, but given the Spirit within you to empower change and empower you to make a difference in the world that's around you. See, these truths fuel humility because what it does is it points us upward and suddenly it's okay to be kind of awesome and kind of flawed because we got a God that's working it out. And suddenly I'm not comparing myself to all the people that are around me and trying to be one up or one down or figure out my position there because I know that I, who I am in Christ. These truths fuel a humility and a contentment within you because when you get a big head because you just did something awesome, suddenly you can, you can go, hey, wait, it's not me, it's Christ within me. And you can give him honor and glory. And in other times, when, it, when you've just blown it, you can go, it's going to be okay, Christ is going to cover this. He's going to take care of you. He's going to walk you through this. Humility creates an open door for redemptive moments in your life to overcome a cancel culture. But few challenges are overcome apart from a cost. And here's a thought number two for you. Is the redemption stories come with a cost. Redemption stories come with a cost. Now this cost may not, or it may be felt, uh, felt physically. It may, be, may or may not be financial or position or location. It may not be the kind of cost that immediately comes to mind. But it, it will always mean an openness to living what I'd call counter-cancel culturally. There's a mouthful for you. Counter-cancel culturally. Coming, a, coming up 
living differently than the culture that we see in the world around us. It means letting go of entitlement. Of saying, I don't have right or claim to this. I'm grateful for what I have. It'll mean surrendering the right to be right all the time. It'll mean loving people who see things differently than you, even if they continue to see things differently than you. That's counter-cancel culturally. Right? When I, when I interact with someone and I, and I choose to love them, even though they see things differently, and I understand they see things differently, and they're not going to see things the same way I do, and I'm not going to see things the same way they do, but I still will value the person who is there in front of me. I will still love the person who's there in front of me. Some of the relationships I value most in social media are some friends from various walks of life who just see things very differently than I do. And I love engaging with them because they help me to see things from different perspectives. I may not always agree with them, but I can still live in relationship with them. I don't have to cancel them. See, God desires redemption over cancellation, but he never says it will be free and easy. Now, we've already looked at Saul and and the cost to him, but I want to look at the next character here in Acts 9 that comes on the scene, and Ananias. So we've got Saul has been knocked down, has seen the light, in a sense, but has been blinded and has gone into Damascus to look for help. The next character we get in Acts 9, uh, verse 10, says, Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now, and I've shown him in a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Now, a couple things here. One, wouldn't it be nice if God just laid out the exact street you're supposed to go to? I wish it was more like that in my life more often. But just so you're clear on what's happening here, God is saying, hey, Ananias, you know that guy that's killing your friends and that's threatening your life and that wants to take you away in chains to Jerusalem? Yeah, go see him. Lay hands on him and pray for him. And I love Ananias' response here. Before it was, yes, Lord. Now it's, but Lord... I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Man, how many times do we read the Bible or we sense God's leadership in our lives, and and rather than going, yes, Lord, we go, but Lord, do you understand what you're asking me to do here? This doesn't make any sense, and it has a high likelihood of not succeeding, and if it doesn't succeed, my life's on the line here. And I love here that God does not cancel Ananias for taking a minute to get on the same page. <laughs> I'm grateful for his grace and for his patience when, with me when I'm trying to get on the same page with him. See, the reality here is that Ananias has a good boundary line drawn in his life. If someone's trying to kill you, it's a valuable boundary line to say, I'm going to try to stay away from them. This is wisdom. This is not a lack of faith. This is not a, I mean, this is, hey, if you're trying to kill me, I'm going to create some distance between you and me. And let's step aside here for just a second and talk about boundary lines. You can draw boundary lines without creating a cancel culture. You can draw boundary lines without creating a cancel culture. Pastor Micah talked about this a little bit last week, but some boundaries do feel a lot like cancellation. 
And there are scenarios in your life where creating a firm boundary line is essential. I think about them in terms of four A's sometimes. In terms of adultery, abuse, abandonment, and addiction. In scenarios like that, of of abuse, of adultery, abuse, abandonment, and addiction, there's oftentimes that very firm boundary lines are essential for your physical health, for your emotional health, for your spiritual health. Well, let's talk about what a boundary line is and what it isn't. See, a boundary line is an intentional decision. It's not an emotional reaction. A boundary line is something that's drawn out of wisdom. It's not something that's determined out of anger. A boundary line is something that's often worked out with wise counsel in the mix. It's not just a knee-jerk reaction. Here's a big point. A boundary line is something that is meant to be protective for you, not punitive towards someone else. This is not about punishing someone else for what they've done or might do. This is about protecting yourself there. And boundary lines are essential for your, again, for your spiritual health, for your emotional health, even for your physical health at times. But our boundary lines often shift as circumstances change and as we come to know God's word and his ways. I'll give you an example. In my life, uh, there was a season where I was coming, becoming serious about my faith. I knew what I believed up here. I knew what I believed in here, but I wasn't living it out out here. My life didn't reflect all of the things that were going on internally. And so I knew I needed to get serious about aligning those together. And in that season of life, I drew some boundaries with some friendships in my life that weren't going to help me to walk closely with my Savior. Now, this isn't to say I canceled them or wrote them off or wouldn't talk to them or, or just said, you're dead to me. Right? I still had the relationships in my life, and yet what I knew was, these are people I need to limit time with here because I know they're not going to be helpful to my figuring out how to walk with Jesus. Now, fast forward a little bit, as I learned to, to actually walk in my faith, as I learned to stand up to temptation, as I learned to stay strong, well, I re-engaged some of those relationships in a different degree. That boundary line shifted and changed. So the reality is that, that God has a redemption story teed up. And for many of us, he does. In this story, he does. But oftentimes, it takes the ability to walk, to step out in faith, to sometimes shift a boundary line that might be there, or be open to what he might do that's just downright miraculous. In this story, God does have a redemption story teed up, and it's going to take Ananias dropping that boundary line of safety and control. God says, go. Ananias says, but Lord. God says, go. Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I, I love this response from God, too, but he's, because what he does is looks at Ananias and he says, I hear you. I understand this, but I know who Saul is, and I know what he's done, and I also know what he's capable of doing, not just for evil, but for good. And any shortcomings he has is outweighed by his potential in the future. And any suffering that he deserves, or catch this, any suffering that you think he deserves, I've got this. I'm going to take care of it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not yours. 
And I love that. He says, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I'm going to take care of that. It's not on you to hold over the head of someone else. What their shortcomings has earned them. You can leave that in God's hands. Your, your command is to go. And he's saying, Ananias, I just want you to go. I want you to give me the opportunity to work through you in this situation. I want you to give me the chance to bring redemption in this story against all odds. What redemption story might God have teed up in your life today? Who have you canceled or, or who are you tempted to just cancel and write off? Maybe it's a kid who just won't seem to come to their senses. Or a parent that's, a, that's an absentee parent or, or even just a parent that won't seem to change their minds on anything. Maybe it's a friend who said some things or did some things that you just can't stand and so you've written off. Or on the flip side, a friend who's written you off and so you've canceled them. Maybe it's a work relationship that's grown cold. Maybe it's a public figure, right, that you don't have any interaction with whatever, whatsoever, but you watch what they say on the news, you watch what they post on social media, and you go, I can't believe they stand for that. And you get so worked up and so angry about the stuff that's going on out there that you withhold hatred in your heart for somebody rather than forgiveness and grace. Who have you canceled or who's canceled you? What redemption story might God have teed up in your life? Whatever it is, I can guarantee you, redemption will come with some cost. It'll cost you a step of faith. It may cost you thinking a little bit differently. But is it worth it? What if our actions, what if your actions rooted in faith to bring redemption would always turn out for good? What if God was always working in all circumstances for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? What if we could trust him to make the best out of whatever situation, even if we don't see the end that's in mind there? For Ananias, this is about to cost him everything to take this step. He's likely putting himself in a position that's going to lead to his own death or imprisonment at best. And yet he believes that God, in God's word enough, in God's goodness enough, in God's ability to redeem enough that he takes that step forward and he says, I'm going to give God the opportunity here. I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to go. And when you choose to go, the result may be more remarkable than you can possibly imagine. Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Simple prayer. And instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized. I love this. I look to this story regularly. I think about it regularly because here's a thought. If God can redeem Saul then no one is out of reach. If God can redeem this situation, then no situation is out of reach. No situation is beyond hope. No situation is beyond redemption. No person is beyond their coming of reconciliation. And I know it may come against all odds. And I do understand there's need for boundary at times, but what redemption story might God have teed up in your life if you're willing to take that step, if you're willing to go if you're willing to allow him to work. Here's my last thought, and we'll wrap things up. 
is that redemption stories begin with you. Redemption stories begin with you. The grace that you can show depends on the grace that you have been shown. And what you have received from God forms the foundation for what you're able to demonstrate to others. Your decision to turn towards God when you discover that that rather than canceling you, that he covers you, that rather than cancellation, you find redemption, suddenly that transforms what you think might be possible when you turn towards someone else. When I realized it was a long shot for God to get a hold of my heart, it changes the way that I look at yours. This month, uh, as we're entering into December, this is the first Sunday of, of Advent leading towards Christmas. And this is a time where we do have some candles here that we take a moment each week. And we'll take a moment to recognize themes that are connected with Christmas as we anticipate and look forward to what God's going to do at that time. Today we light a candle and remember the theme of hope. Hebrews 11 says that faith is being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you do not see. Sure of what you hope for, certain of what you do not see. I think cancellations happen when hope fails. When we can't see a path toward redemption, and I just don't know how this could possibly work out, and I don't really have hope for it to work out, and so it's easier to cancel you than to seek redemption. But our hope for redemption is not rooted in our ability to see. It's rooted in God's ability to save. Let me say that one more time. Our hope for redemption is not rooted in our ability to see. It's rooted in God's ability to save. And God's promise is to save everyone who chooses to believe. He doesn't desire anyone to perish. Now, there was a day when, when I was running hard and fast away from God. And there was a day that you were running hard and fast away from God. And maybe this is today. If that's you, he's hoping for your return. He won't confine you, but he longs to forgive you. He loves you. He made you. He likes you. He wants to be in relationship with you. But God will only redeem you when you choose to receive him. And when you turn to him, you can know he will never cancel you. Because one was canceled on your behalf. See, Jesus took your cancellation on himself on the cross. And his sacrifice then covers you. Remembering this, we're going to receive communion in a couple moments here. But before we get to communion, I want to give you a chance to pray. A part of preparing our hearts to take communion is is a choice to align our own heart with the heart of God. To think vertically for a moment rather than horizontally. To remember the, the sacrifice that's been made. To remember the cancellation that happened so that you could be covered and saved. Before we do anything with communion, we want to take this moment, just align our hearts with God. Now I'm going to pray a prayer here in just a moment. I'm going to invite everyone to pray this with me as well. This is a prayer saying yes to Jesus, inviting him to be the Lord of your life, inviting, just aligning your heart with his. And this may be something you've prayed this or something similar over the course of time. 
It may be a first time for you, but here at Five Lakes Church, we want to pray this together today out loud so that no one has to pray it alone. I'm going to invite you to pray here with me. Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe that you lived, that you died, and that you rose again. When you could have canceled me, instead you covered me. So I call out to you for forgiveness and grace and acceptance. I turn from the things that are sinful and I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for forgiving me, for saving me, for giving me eternal life. I praise you for your grace and for your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.